Uh, we're in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, and really what is the opening day we've been in for many weeks, in these opening passages of this newly Holy Spirit-empowered church. And, and just to give us a quick review from last weekend, if you remember, Sam guided us in seeing, as we looked at Acts 2 together, that that early church was really like us, in that they weren't perfect. But really, they were just simply pursuing the, the right things. They were living out, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this, this new kind of kingdom life, the kingdom of God come on earth that Jesus initiated. And that really, that transformed the way they were living. It, it reoriented things. It, would, it led them to live like a new kind of community, which again was attractively different and at times magnetically different, magnetically different than the society or world around them. And, and so let's go back and hear again the description of that spirit-guided church at Pentecost. We're in Acts 2, and let's pick it up in verse 42. And friends, this is the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And it was the Lord that added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It, it, picture this, a church that existed to give themselves away. Not, not because they were somehow forced to do it or, or mandated to do it, but it came from this transformed understanding of life and this empowerment from the life of Jesus through the Holy Spirit within them. And part of the expression was that they were gathering daily in the temple courts. Kind of intriguing. They didn't have church buildings in that time. They didn't have a gathering place, so they just kept living out kind of their Jewish faith, but with a transformation of who the Messiah now was. So day by day, they went to the temple courts. You know, I guess most of us would, and I think most of us would, hear that passage again and respond. Boy, I, I could go for that. I mean, how could we not want that? And, and what's kind of interesting, though, is that not all that many years after these Acts 2 events, after the church was initiated, the body of Christ came to be, the author of Hebrews felt the need to write to the followers of Jesus he was writing to and write these words of instruction. Hebrews 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, the day of Christ's return, drawing near. Now we hear that and that tells us something. It, it, it simply means this, that followers of Jesus had really already started falling into the habit or mindset of thinking, you know, I, I can just follow Jesus on my own. That's good enough. I don't really need to be part of a church gathering together. Which I think raises an intriguing question that I'd really like to bridge from Acts 2 through Scripture for us today. 
And it's simply this. Why do we do this? Why do we gather like this? I mean, what's, what's the point of, the, of this? I, I think we'd all recognize that an increasing question our day really is, do I really need to be part of some kind of gathering of community of faith to follow Jesus? I mean, is life in the church really that necessary? And, and clearly, that's a far bigger question than we can fully and adequately answer today. But, and actually, last week, Sam laid some foundations for helping us understand what the church was to be about. And today, I want to take the next step, really, and focus in on really one particular dimension of why we do this together. That's expressed in Acts 2, and really, we'll see it throughout Scripture. And, and so, I want to ask God to guide us in this and hear from in, in it. So, will you pray with me? Let's pray together. And, and Father, I, I know as we gather in these places, we come with lives that are full enough, busy enough from a range of things. And, and likely each one of us could be here distracted by so many things and responsibilities. And I pray that through, through your grace and your spirit, you, you would prompt us to hear you. And lead me, as I share even, Father, that, that, that what comes of this would, would bring you glory and, and would be of you. We pray this, Father, together. And again, all God's people say, amen. I, I would guess most of you know the name of Howard Schultz. Uh, he's a chairman and CEO of Starbucks. And he has famously uh, explained and repeatedly explained that, that Starbucks' primary product is not what most people presume it to be. Uh, it's not their coffee. It's what he says is, the coffee experience. And you Tim Hortonites are gagging on that, right? <laughs> he said it's, it's the warmth, it's a sense of belonging, a, a relationship at a meeting place. I mean, the coffee is good, but it's not that good. Schultz even says that, that they hook you or seek to hook you by getting you inside into that coffee experience. That, that they want to be, what they say, is really the third place in people's lives. The first place being home, second being workplace, and the third place in people's lives being that place of gathering in relationship. You, you know where that concept comes from? Not Tim Hortons. Uh, and not McDonald's. And actually, not even the church. It, it's not just from that. You actually find it back in even the most ancient cultures. There has always been this pull to have a kind of gathering place with others. And so you look at the ancient Greeks. They had their, typically, their agora, their marketplace, which was not just a place of business, it was a place of gathering. Ancient Roman cities had, as you look at their design, they had what was called the cardo. It was a main boulevard with shopping and so on, but it was a place of gathering for the community. You go to ancient Jewish culture, in Jerusalem, for example, it was the temple courts. Then we bring that forward to us and say, what would it be for us today? What would that kind of place be? And some would say, well, it's Starbucks. I mean, and others would say, well, it's the pub. Or some would say it's a health club. Runners might say it's the running room where, where we gather. That, that seeking, that longing for a place in some ways of shared experience and relationship. 
And there's a term for that, which we seek, that's commonly used in our day, and it actually comes from two Latin words. The first Latin word being com, which simply means together, and the second being munis, which means to fortify or strengthen, to strengthen together, and that from which we get our word, community, or even more intensely, communitas, that, that place where a gathering of people walks through liminality, that in-between place together, which I think prompts another question. If we kind of think back archaeologically, sociologically, where does that transcultural yearning come from? Why do we always long for community, family in some way? Now, the response of Scripture would be, it's one of the purposes of God for which he formed you. To put it another way, God designed you. He designed us for community. I mean, listen, for example, Jesus' prayer, his high priestly prayer in John 17. In John 17, I'll read verses 9 and 11. Je listen to his prayer. Before he goes to the cross, Jesus prayed to the Father, I am praying for them, my followers. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. Second part of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they might what? They may be one, even as we are one. Now, now just catch this. We humans, all humanity, we are formed in the imago Dei, the image of God, right? That's how we're created. And our God, the one in whose image we are formed, is a triune God. He is the Trinity, eternally existent as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has eternally existed in complete, loving community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God wasn't lonely in some sense. He didn't need to create us. The triune God was complete in himself. And so Jesus' prayer for us was, and friends, it still is, Father, let my followers experience what we experience. How stunning would that be? Now, I, I want us to see this, so let, let's walk through a string of scriptures together, right? It's just laying an early foundation here together with this. So let's walk through a few of them. First, let's turn to John, 1 John, rather. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3 and verse 1, and, and hear these words and catch this picture. 1 John 3 verse 1. In fact, read it with me, will you? Let's read this together. 1 John 3 verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now, now that's easy to just pass through, but catch that. And really, we'd say God wanted and wants a family. That that's really why we're here. He wanted many children. And the Bible really says, as we read the story of it, he planned everything, really this expanse of the universe, so we could be born, so we could know and glorify and enjoy him as part of his family. Listen to what Paul says about this. Similar language in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1 and verse 4, it says this. In love he predestined us for adoptions as sons, as, as daughters, through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This was all part of his will to have us adopted as children. And so again we see the entire Bible, this entire book that, that we walk through is really an explanation of the story of God building this family. That's, that's what this is all about. 
And God is building a family for himself that's going to last not just for our brief years here, but forever. It's an eternal family. You were made to last forever in community, in family. Now, now, it's interesting that once we get a hold of that idea that that's what we were designed for, and once we enter into this relationship with God as children of his by knowing and enjoying and glorifying Christ, God gives guidance that sounds oddly communal, familial, in the kind of guidance that we're given. For example, one place, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7, and we read this, 1 Peter 2, 17, sorry. It says simply this. In fact, read this with me. Love the brotherhood. That was weak. Let's read it together. Love the brotherhood. Now, easy to say, really hard to do, right? But that's what he wants for us. As a community of Christ followers, a community of children of God. So when we read Acts 2, 42 to 47, when these new followers of Jesus begin to reg- regularly gather together and, and start walking in the supportive called koinonia relationships together, understand that's not a new thing for God's people. All of Scripture, as you read the story, God has been drawing his people into community, into fellowship, into family. And, and so really the church, this Acts 2 community we've been reading about, was the next even greater expression of that ongoing purpose of God. So we'd say, so why do we gather like this? One focused reason is, because friends, you and I were designed for God's family, for for this kind of fellowship, encouragement. We were made for community. Okay, so with that as a background then, Today, what I want us to do, I I want to then consider three questions about God's family and three resultant gifts. Three questions, it might be a review, and then three gifts together. That all sounds kind of scary, like a lot. We're going to do it, all right, Uh, together. So let's start with the questions, three questions. Let's start with the first question. It'd be simply this. How do we become part of God's family? Well, look at this. Scripture makes it clear, really, as we read of it. Scripture makes it clear that everyone is invited to be part of God's family, but not everyone is part of it. So we read again in Ephesians, uh, these words, again in chapter 1, chapter 1 and verse 4, and it says this again, simply, in love he predestined us for adoptions as sons, how? Through Jesus Christ. He is a doorway into that family of God. And through faith in Jesus, in turning him as Savior for forgiveness and Lord of my life to follow him, I then receive his Holy Spirit and become a child of the King, of of God himself. I, I am adopted as a child of God and therefore become, I don't just become part of a meeting, I become part of a family of God himself as our Father. So let's be clear on the second question then. And the second question again, to be clear on, what is God's family? Just to be really clear on this. And, and again, let's listen to Paul. Paul said this in writing to a young pastor named Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. Paul wrote this. I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household. Now that word actually could be translated the family of God, which is what? Say the phrase with me the church of the living God. The church is, we are the family of God. 
So I, I just want us to catch this, and let's be really clear on this again. That means then that the church is not a place you go to. The church is a family you belong to. Okay, let's read that together. Will you read it with me? The church is not a place you go to. The church is a family you belong to. That is a significant difference, isn't it, in, in that reality? A church is far more than a building. It's far more than just some kind of worship service. It's a family that really, in ways we don't even understand, we belong to through faith in Jesus. So again, back to our earlier question, why do we do this? For one, friends, it, it's because it is impossible to fulfill all of God's purposes for you and me in life without fellowship. Impossible. We need each other. And, and therefore, we led to a third question, which is simply this. The third question is, again, why is this family such a priority? And again, there are a breadth of reasons for this. Let me just focus on one. Because again, let's, let's understand, be reminded of this about Jesus. The family of God was Jesus' plan to change the world. To change the world. I mean, just think through this together. I mean, when Jesus left the earth, three years after beginning his ministry, he didn't leave behind, really, we couldn't say, any financial resources for his movement. He, he didn't leave behind kind of any extensive infrastructure. There was no budget, no building, no clout, no connections. There, there were none of those things that we think need to drive an organization or a movement. You know what he primarily left behind? His small group, really. These 11 really ordinary dudes and their circle of friends. And then think of this. 2,000 years later, here we are because of them. I mean, I'll tell you how seriously Jesus takes this notion of his family, his community. Now, now, those of you who know the New Testament, answer this question for me, which was raised by David Jurgen. Consider this. How often did Jesus approach someone in ministry and say, I, I want you to follow me. I, I'm putting together a little band of disciples, and I want you to be one of them. But I know you're busy. You don't really have time to be part of a small group, a kind of discipling community. Plus, some of the disciples can be kind of weird, I know. Peter talks too much, Thomas is so negative, and, and Judas, don't even get me going on Judas. I mean, they're not normal like you and I are. So, so really, you can kind of skip the community part. Yet just as long as you read the text, attend some lectures, you can do discipleship on the self-study plan. How often did Jesus make that offer available to somebody? Never, not even close. In, in fact, think through this. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus' first step, empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit, was to establish community, to get around himself as a small group. And then throughout his ministry, his ministry modeled and taught on this new kingdom of God lived out in community. And then on the last night of his life, he prayed for what? The oneness of his community. I mean, so catch this. I mean, you could really say that Jesus said that the credibility, catch it, the credibility of his entire ministry and mission rested on our oneness. 
That's really what he said. In fact, hear his words again in John 17 again. In, in John 17, and, and this time in verse 23, listen to his prayer. John 17, 23. Jesus prayed to the Father, may they, we his followers, become perfectly one. And what will be the fruit of that? So that the world may know, the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. I tell you, friends, we believe those words, that, that prayer, are still so central to our purpose that we have them inscribed on a rock right outside our front door here at Evergreen, on that big boulder there. In fact, maybe every week when you come in here, you just want to touch that and go, that, that's what we're to be about. <laughs> Je Jesus said it. Because then before Jesus ascended to heaven, his final words to his friends were, extend my family. <laughs> Spread the community. I you are mine. I want you to go to all the world, and I'm going to be with you as you do this, as you go out. Okay, so let's therefore consider. I want you to consider three resulting gifts that then come from being part of the family of God through Christ. And, and the first gift is simply this, we could say. In the family of God, you can stop hiding. In fact, read the phrase with me, will you? In the family of God, you can stop hiding. That this to be a place where it's safe to take off our mask. Now, now, some of you know that in the Genesis story, it, it says initially that the man and woman, do you remember it says they were naked and not ashamed? Now, we understand, and do you understand, that primarily wasn't a fashion statement. That wasn't primarily a statement about clothing. Rather, it was a statement about transparency. The meaning behind that, there were, there were no secrets. There, there were, they were fully known. And everything about them was revealed. And in that, they were still loved together. And then with the fall, turning to sin, came shame. And with shame came hiding. And, and then those powerful words of Adam to God. After the fall, after his sin, at Genesis 3.10, Adam said to God, I heard the sound of you in the garden, I was afraid. Because I was naked, and what did he do? I hid myself. And friends, again, the human race has been hiding ever since, really. And sometimes, this is a tragedy, sometimes we people in the churches hide best of all. Because we're so easily pulled, even as we gather, to act different or try to act more spiritual because we think, well, that's what everybody else is doing. I, I'm the least of these. Okay, hear these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, again, was a German pastor and martyr. This is what he wrote during World War II. Listen. He who is alone with his sins is utterly alone. It seems that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, their fellowship and service, are often left in their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. And so the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner even though we are all sinners. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from their fellowship. We dare not to be seen as sinners. And thus many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is discovered among the righteous. 
And thus we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. How tragic that at times it's in the family, the church, that we hide most of all. In the church I grew up in, which I've told you, was a, a really good church and, and for which I am deeply thankful. But like most churches, sometimes there were people that came to our church every week. They, they'd sit in the same pew. They'd smile at the same faces. They'd, they'd talk about the weather, their jobs, or sports, something superficial. I mean, week after week, year after year. But nobody ever really knew them, really. And nobody knew. They may have been dying inside. Nobody knew whether he or she was what they were afraid of. Nobody knew what he or she was maybe dreaming of. Nobody knew what they were perhaps trapped in or addicted with or struggling with. And friends, that's not Jesus' plan for his family. And, and every once in a while in that community, that gathering, somebody would crash. Maybe a, a marriage would just seem like it just suddenly disintegrated or somebody would have an affair or a child would run away or, or they or would just stop coming. And, and people would say or wonder, wow, what happened to them? Where'd, where'd they go? And, and nobody knew. And really, I, I know this. That is resonating deeply with some of you here right now. You may have been here a long time, and then you would say, nobody knows me. And, and I'll tell you, I understand about hiding. And truly, one of the areas where I will need God's help until I die is my own twisted tendency to want to look better or stronger or holier or smarter than I really am. I mean, I, I desperately need community. And that's why James in James 5.16 would say, confess your sins to one another. I mean, that's community. And a number of years ago, I was in a discipleship huddle with two other guys, uh, Randy and Randy, and, and, and that was their names, not their behavior. Uh, but we, we knew each other pretty well, really. But we really wanted to try, to, how do we live this out? So we just thought together, let's be honest about our temptations, about where we've messed up. And so when we met together, I just, I shared with them what I felt were some of the darkest stuff in my life, the stuff I was most embarrassed about, really. And don't worry, I'm not going to tell you. But it felt very vulnerable. And when I got to the end of sharing my stuff, there was just as quiet. And then they said two things. One of the Randys said, Clyde, your sins are forgiven. Now, he didn't think he was a priest. He, he didn't think he was the one forgiven my sins. But really, he was speaking that truth in my life. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful, he's just, to forgive us our sins and do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'll tell you, having a friend speak those words over me, there, there was a power, it was like in some way there was a release in hearing that truth in that moment. And then the second Randy said, Clyde, we love you. And then, honestly, to have these guys know ugly stuff and, about me and, and still know me it is powerful. I, I love what C.S. Lewis wrote about this. Listen to his words. Friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. <laughs> this is a really important truth about human existence. 
you can only know love to the extent you are known. It's true. Because as, as long as there's stuff that, that you don't know about me, you may say you love me, but inside, inside, somewhere real deep inside me, we'll be thinking, yeah, but, but you don't know the whole truth about me. You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't love me if you truly knew me. And, and so one of the gifts of the family of God is this to be a place where we can stop hiding. And two other gifts that I just... I'll just touch on two briefly. A second gift in the family of God is simply this. Understand this. Jesus is uniquely present where his family gathers. Uh, say the phrase with me, will you? Jesus is uniquely present where his family gathers. Now, I, I want to be clear on this. Jesus is always present. In every place, in every moment we find ourselves, he is there. But scripture also makes it clear he is present when his community, his family gathers in a special kind of way. That, that there's something different. That's why Jesus, we even say, Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, what's the result of that? There, there I am among them. I'm always present, but there, there, I'm, there's a presence of me when you gather together. Meaning his presence, he expresses himself uniquely as we, his children, gather. He, he's... He's here. And in the family of God, we can stop hiding. And again, we can rest in this, that when we gather even like this, Mosaic, I mean, he's uniquely present with us. And then, then a third gift is simply this. In, in this community, think of this. In this community, we can be formed to love like Jesus loved. Let, let's say the phrase together. In this community, we can be formed to love like Jesus loved. It, it tells us something. Then when Jesus was with his small group on that last, last night before he went to the cross, he gives one command to his followers, his family, over and over again. Remember what it was? Love one another. And then another point in John 13, 35, Jesus says, by this all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Then you go on to John 15, 12, and Jesus said, this is my commandment to you. You know what it is? Love one another. Jump down to verse 17 in John 15, and Jesus says, these things I command you so that you'll what? You'll love one another. So catch this. One of the striking things about Jesus' repeated command to his disciples to love one another is this, that even after three years together with these disciples, every single day with them, Jesus still feels the need to give them the command over and over and over. You know why? They still didn't get it. <laughs> That's why. Even that family of disciples in the presence of Jesus struggled with love, which again tells us something important. In fact, it answers an important question for us. Simply the question is this. You might be wondering, so Clyde, if I become part of this church and, and join a small group, can I expect this kind of effortless, deep, rich, problem-free, intimate community for most of my life? Here's a succinct answer. Probably not. Because living together as community, as family, it's never easy, is it? I love what Henry Nouwen says about this. One of my favorite quotes from him. He said simply this. Community is a place 
where the person I least want to be there is always there. <sighs> there will always be difficult people. In fact, I'll tell you this, if you get in a small group, there's no difficult person, call me. I'll assign one to your group. <laughs> we can spread them out evenly. And Jesus, if we are praying and singing, we want to surrender all to him, Jesus still calls us passionately, love one another. So therefore, is it any surprise to us that when the Holy Spirit of Jesus, uh, the Spirit of Christ comes upon his followers in power at Pentecost, that one of the first fruits is that they start loving, start living in community in this rattle kind of loving way, where they start selling their stuff and giving to those who have need. They, day by day, they're gathering together, they're meeting together in homes, and all they're doing, and not with, oh, geez, another meal to go to, but with glad and generous hearts, it says. And we could almost say that the whole credibility of Christ's mission rests on this. Not that we are smart or articulate, not that we are building something big or impressive, but simply this, that we here love one another. I've been reflecting on this this week and praying about this through the week, and particularly the question, okay, Clyde, then, what then is the impractical encouragement for us? What's the practical application of this for us? And I'll tell you, and I, th I thought through this, I had it written down. I could choose to exhort you to belong here, to even become a member here, to, to go to our new members class, to enter into this community in that kind of way, to, to have some kind of commitment here, not just stay on the fringe. I could say that. I could also encourage you to get connected in some way, to, to call Fernando, to get connected to a small group or a discipleship huddle, to, to start walking life on life with one another. And I'll tell you, those are actually and, and could be very healthy, beneficial steps for many of you to take. But you read this, and let's be clear on this. The only source for, for this kind of transformative acts to loving community it's not some new ministry program. It's not a better put mission statement. The only source is each one of us beginning to be submitted to, filled with, guided and empowered by, and responding obedience to the same Holy Spirit that was indwelling this church. That's what changed them. They didn't have a guidebook or a list of to-dos. They just started living out Jesus because he was within them and they were responding to him. And here's the thing. It's the same Holy Spirit within us. It could be expressed again because God hasn't gone anywhere. Can you imagine that? So really, it's, it's what we sang. Do, do we truly pray? Oh God, are we, we are dark, we are broken, we come with our fallenness, we, we take off our masks, we are sinners, we walk with each other, but we seek to be filled with your Spirit. Oh Father, would you? So can we pray to that end? Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we want to lead well, to minister well. We want to be well organized. We believe that honors you. We've said it often. But Father, as well, there aren't techniques good enough to bring about this transformed kind of living. So we would pray, would you by your grace do in us what you even did within these would you fill us with your spirit as we seek to call out to you and respond to you and obey you?
that the fruit of us, we start seeing we're, we're being changed. We are loving each other in new ways, and Father, for those who are here who feel like they are alone, I pray by your grace they would find community. They would find connection and, and lead us to be that kind of welcoming place. We pray, Father, so you'd be glorified. And really, as Jesus prayed, so that because we love one another, the world would know that our Father sent you and you love us by your grace. We pray this together and together we say, amen, amen.